everyone, and welcome to another fantastic episode of Adventures in DevOps. That was me hitting my head on my mic. Uh, with us today, uh, well, I'm with you today, of course, uh, as one of your co-hosts. I'm Nell Shamrell Harrington. I'm a principal engineer at Chef. Uh, with me, as always, is my co-host, Chuck. Chuck, how are you doing today? Doing all right. Uh, I'm getting ready to launch the book in paperback form. Ooh. So, uh, yeah, go back to Amazon and pick it up. Leave me some reviews. I, I appreciate that. Awesome. And with us today is a special guest, uh, Lance Albertson. Uh, Lance, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing fantastic. Uh, glad to have you joining us. I understand you work for the Oregon State Open Source Lab. Can you tell us a little bit, a bit about yourself and a little bit about that? Yeah, so I've been at the lab since about 2007. Uh, the lab has been here since about 2003 or 2002. Um, what we've been doing for all these years is providing a lot of infrastructure hosting for open source projects from around the world. Um, a lot of this before anything really existed in really a sane form, even before cloud even existed. Um, and so we've kind of adapted over the years uh, to, to help projects in need. Uh, we tend to host more of the medium to larger size projects these days, but we still host a lot of the other, other uh, smaller, more but impactful projects. The flip side of it is, is we host a bunch of, or no, we host, we employ a bunch of undergraduate students uh, that learn the trade. We teach them DevOps, get to work with production systems. In our case, they're doing a lot of chef stuff, doing testing, integrating systems, dealing with upgrades, legacy systems, the whole bottle of wax. Um, so they get all that awesome experience. And a lot of our students end up doing amazing things out in the industry. Some of our earliest students uh, even uh, co-created some, or uh, co-funded some, uh, some startup companies that have been bought, such as uh, one good example is CoreOS was started by Alex Polvey and Brandon Phillips, which were both uh, OSL students at one point. Um, so we're pretty big in the industry and we do a lot of stuff, but we, uh, we, we, don't, we don't talk a lot. <laughs> so uh, talk about what we do. We just keep chugging along and make things going. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Well, that is awesome. And we've had a late arrival. Looks like our other co-host, Scott, has joined us. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm great. Hi, Scott Nixon. Sorry for the, my late arrival. No worries uh, whatsoever. So Lance, something you mentioned that I want to dive into, it, it sounds like you're kind of training the next generation of DevOps folks. Can you tell us what, what, what's it like? How do, how do students get to uh, work in your lab and what do they learn? So uh, to get started at the lab, we, we go through an interview process and we just basically see who, what students are, are interested in wanting to be to work here. And we go through a, a, a typical interview process where we, we don't expect them to know everything. We're looking for, do they have that, that, that draw to want to be interested in learning about it? Do they have at least a basic understanding of how Linux works and how the, the ecosystem kind of works overall? And then other than that, we just, uh, based off of what we have, what we have available, we just uh, hired four new students here in the past couple of months and getting them onboarded. And so now we have them going through a whole process of, uh, an onboarding process of having them learn a whole bunch of things that we have. I have them going through like a test cookbook where we go through typical uh, code style things and so so forth and get used to our workflow and all, all of that. And then we eventually get them involved in dealing with tickets um, as come in. So they get to basically be a hands of all trade on everything that's coming through. So they get to do everything and then uh, from, from beginning to end, um, once they, it takes about three to four months until they're kind of fully uh, up to speed and they can really kind of take a handle on anything that we throw at them and uh, we'll give them bigger projects. So some of them might be, we need to refactor some way we do something, or we have this big migration we need to do. Um, we, uh, you name it. Or if they, they can come up with things on their own, they can see how our infrastructure is changing and what we need to do. So they do a lot of stuff. We also do a lot of hands-on stuff. We actually have a physical data center. So uh, we do a lot of on-premise stuff. And so they get a lot of experience, which is actually kind of hard to get these days since everything's in the cloud. So um, it's actually quite useful to be around all of that. So, but yeah, I think that that covers about all of that. Awesome. You're right on the physical data center thing. It's been a long time since I accidentally caught myself on one of the uh, rails when trying to rack a server or unrack it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the good old days, right? Indeed. 
when yeah, I worked what? for the NFL, I used to have to, I had to wear kind of like a collared shirt and like slacks to work. And like we were ra- removing servers from a rack and I literally cut, put like this huge cut in like this fairly brand new shirt or whatever. And I was just like thinking, oh, isn't it so wonderful? I get to dress up in dress shirts and then just get them destroyed, <laughs> taking out servers. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a great experience, and I get to see how we uh, impact a lot of the various things that we have to deal with. And uh, racking new hardware is always fun as well. We we get some new hardware in there here and there, and we get to do that. And then we also get the odd stuff. So a lot of the stuff we've done over the years is the projects. Some of the distributions they need to have access to other architectures, and um, getting access to that in the cloud is kind of difficult. So we've got you name it. We have almost like a museum in some ways. Um, but yeah, we have ARM, we have power, we have, you name it, we have it all in there that we have we, projects need to have access to. Yeah. I also love just the opportunity there. Um, when I was earning my, or earning, when I was working on my undergraduate, I was a student employee in the data center. And so, um, you know, sometimes I'd work the night shift, you know, and we'd watch all the batch jobs run and things like that. And, uh, and then I kind of graduated from that onto the server management team. And we weren't racking the servers. That was somebody else's job. But we were doing all of the setup as far as the operating systems and supporting them for the different colleges at the university and things like that. And it was, it was an invaluable experience just to be able to see, oh, this is how this kind of thing is done in this industry. So um, I, I'm really excited about those opportunities afforded as well and, and just giving people the opportunity to work on stuff that actually runs real stuff. Yeah, uh, one thing that I know students have no idea of is uh, how do you manage servers remotely? Um, our data center is actually uh, in another building on campus. We used to be right next door to it, but we mm-hmm. moved recently over the last few years. And so teaching them how remote management works, uh, IPMI, how you get on the serial console, how you can do remote power on and off, that kind of stuff. And being able to do all of that stuff remotely is kind of all, all new to them. And they don't really have to worry about that when they go to the cloud. But people that build clouds need to worry about that. So, and so, yeah, they get a lot of hands-on experience on a lot of that stuff. Yeah. I also remember uh, at the university when I started working in the data center, uh, the data center was basically probably twice as big as the bedroom that I'm sitting in right now. And they built a new state-of-the-art data center underground between two of the buildings on campus. And when we moved down there, it was a completely different story. But yeah. Um, the, the number of servers and the amount of work that you have to do to manage uh, all of that infrastructure. Yeah, people just don't really think about that. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any kind of automation for powering stuff on, powering stuff off? Like, is there an automated chef template or something that or a recipe that you run when someone racks a server? I wish we had that all automated. <laughs> it's okay. Um, well, so every DevOps engineer ever. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty much. Well, we, we don't deal with powering on systems as often. We deal more with the, the virtual machines more often. So uh, we don't have nearly as much automation on that. I've tried getting um, some automation on installing uh, operating systems and so forth on hardware. So I've actually been using uh, Razor Server a little bit for doing some of our automation on do- getting that deployed, which has been kind of nice. Uh, but I have it integrated into like Chef to like automatically deploy after that. I basically get it into a state that's up and going. And then from there, I bootstrap up the Chef and then we go from there. Cool. So, I mean, we've got it that far. I would like to be able to, uh, you know, I, I want to be able to have a nice uh, like pixie menu of options of things that we want to do. And so if we need to get into a rescue mode, we can quickly do that with a net boot and all of that. Uh, but things get complicated when you're like, well, it works on x86, but I can't use the same iPixie on power because they don't have support for it. And mm-hmm. so you have to kind of work around that a little bit and, and deal with that. So, but yeah, we don't quite have an automated way in that quite a bit yet, but we're getting there. Absolutely. Progress, not perfection. Yes. <laughs> I'm curious how much of your infrastructure is, you you mentioned virtual machines and yeah, the, the last job I had at the university was actually managing um, VMware ESX. And so I'm curious, how much of your infrastructure is virtual and how much of it is physical? I would say, well, it's kind of hard to say. Um, I would say probably, I want to know, about 70% of it is virtual and the rest of it is, is hardware. But it just kind of depends on what that's supporting. So in the case of... Uh, for one example, we have uh, we work with IBM and we have an open power 
uh, cloud that we had built for projects to be able to build, uh, do builds on the power architecture. Actually, mm -hmm. if you get a power PC build from Docker, you're probably getting it from a VM running on our infrastructure, for example. There's a lot of that stuff. So all of that is hardware, obviously. And so we're managing all of that, but then we have about over, I think almost 250 VMs on that OpenStack cluster there. So, but the stuff that we, we run, most of our websites are all on virtual machines. I can't think of anything that's running bare metal other than like our Nagio server or, or critical things that we want to make sure are physically separated from dependencies with, with virtual machines. Uh, but but a lot of it is, is virtual machines, I'd say. That's been a big change over the years. Like we used to have a whole bunch of servers for yep. projects and now we're pretty much, if they want to send us something, we have to be like, why? Like, do you have a specific reason for doing this? Because then we have to deal with well, when it, when it breaks, I have we have to go over and fix something and and all of that. Like, I'd uh, uh, rather have it on a virtual machine if it, if it works well. But if you have a specific reason, then yeah, we'll do physical hardware for that. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's funny too because I graduated from college thirteen ish years ago, and yeah, so I'm watching this whole transition because now yeah, we're talking about uh, clusters and containers and things like that that didn't exist back then that that are out there now. Um, one thing that I'm also curious about, so you said that you provide infrastructure for open source projects. What, uh, I, I mean, what, what all do you provide? Anything that a project needs within reason. <laughs> <laughs> within reason is always a key qualifier. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, can, I can give you an example. So um, let's see here. What's a good example to start out with? Um, well, uh, one example is the Drupal infrastructure. They started out only having a couple servers. Um, hosted in Belgium way back in the day, and, they, and then we had some stuff set up, um, and they didn't really have a lot of system and experience on managing their site, and they had a lot of growth with that project, and so a lot of our students took upon themselves to kind of help make that work, build up their infrastructure over the years, and so it got to the point where they have the whole rack there. We actually, they're actually paying for their, uh, their hosting with us now to kind of help offset and uh, subsidize some of the other projects that we have hosted here. And um, of course, a lot of the stuff they have now are hosted in the cloud elsewhere. So a lot of the stuff they have hosted here are some private VMware clusters for testing and so forth. So they don't have to pay for it out in the cloud. And so it's changed over the years. Um, and actually, a lot of the students that were involved with that initially are now working for companies that do a lot of Drupal stuff. So, mm -hmm. uh, but that's one example. Uh, another example, a simple one is like BusyBox and Builder. Pretty small community, at least uh, resource on our end is basically one VM actually two now, I guess, and a couple of more things, but pretty low impact, it works, but they just want to make sure things are going. Um, we're pretty much hands off. Um, at one point we were managing some of their VMs, but now they're kind of managing one of their VMs and then we're managing another one. See another project, uh, PHP BB is another one. We're pretty much being their sysadmins on all their projects. They had some issues with some security way back in the day and they really didn't have enough manpower to kind of handle that. So we kind of pulled that into all the stuff that we had um, and all of their all of their infrastructure is VMs hosted on our infrastructure, and 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 go from there. We have bare metal database servers that kind of get some performance benefits out of that, so we have them on that. Um, we also have a lot of mailing lists. Um, a lot of projects need mailing lists. So a lot of uh, stuff out there. So we have a mailing list that we have set up. Our mirror is really popular, so that's another thing people want to be able to download their software really fast. And so we have our mirror that's located in three different locations across the U.S. Uh, see, I could go on and on. I mean, each project is a little bit different. We host the ROS project, the robot operating system, uh, some websites, some CI stuff. Some newer stuff that we've been doing actually was based off of a donation we had with Facebook a couple of years ago. Um, they have the Prineville Data Center over uh, in Central Oregon, and um, they had some pre-production racks hardware from their Open Compute project that they wanted to donate to us. And so uh, they sent us three full racks worth of their equipment. Uh, about 90 systems, I think, total. Wow. And, then, and then also provided some hard drives, uh, some new hard drives. They wouldn't send us old ones, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but these had, you know, 10 gig switches and everything. The fun part was that the racks were too tall to fit in our data center. Oh, no. Required special power, which wasn't compatible with our data center without a lot of money. And thankfully, at that time, we were moving over to this new office building. We had a room here that we could set up for that. So we could just fit the racks in. <laughs> and it took me several years to kind of get everything in place. And now I have about, well, I think 60 nodes running on it. And a lot of that is just doing uh, continuous integration stuff for a variety of projects. We collaborated with the GCC Compile Farm project. 
and they reached out a lot of the community members. So I know, for example, uh, GNOME has several GitLab runners running on those systems. Uh, VLC has a bunch of CI builder stuff going on in there. Um, I think F-Droid has a bunch of builder stuff in there as well. Um, builder was doing some builds in there. Um, I can't remember all of the other stuff, but there's a whole bunch of stuff. And it's always kind of fun looking into that and seeing how that all works and, and getting students kind of the same. This is strange hardware. And how does this work? It's not our normal stuff. So, What's the most obscure piece of hardware you have, you've run something on or um, one of? I'm trying to think. Well, at one point, a long time ago, we don't currently have it. We had an Origin 2000 MIPS oh. um, machine. It was a whole big machine. Um, I can't remember who that was with, uh, but nobody was using it anymore. I remember I had this like Gateway 2000 PC computer to like manage it <laughs> back in the day. But we don't have that anymore. Um, I'd say some, maybe the, some of the smaller embedded systems that we have, because I think there's some MIPS stuff that we have. That's pretty strange. Uh, let's see what else. Gentoo has a variety of things. They have some Itanium. They have some, yeah, they, have, they still have some Spark. But yeah, they usually have a collection of things in there that we have to, to manage and deal with from time to time. Back when we were starting up new shows, one of the shows that got started was Views on View. And one of the things that was really fun about that is that I got to know a bunch of really terrific people in the View community. And furthermore, one thing that happened that really hadn't happened on any of the other shows, we actually got a member of the core team to come on as a regular panelist on the show. We have Chris Fritz on there. The other thing is, is you may recognize some of the other voices. Ben Hong, who's on the official View News podcast, is also a panelist on the show. He's worked for Politico and now works for GitLab. We also have a bunch of other terrific panelists that come on and talk to you about what's going on in the Vue community. And because they're so closely tied to Vue and they talk to people about Vue all the time, they're very up-to-date and very knowledgeable about what's going on in the Vue community. So if you're looking for a way to learn Vue.js or if you're looking for a way to stay current with Vue.js and kind of have the water cooler conversations you wish you could have about it in places where maybe they're not using it, then definitely check it out. You can find it at viewsonview.com. And I'm curious, how much of all of this, because I mean, so I'm, I'm looking at the hosted project list on the site and I don't know, there's gotta be close to 200 things, either that's a mirror or hosting or, um, you know, all these different things, right? And mm -hmm. I guess how much of this is managed by students on kind of a, from a percentage basis? Well, it's kind of hard to quantify that exactly because... Yeah. Some of these projects, so for example, we host the Apache Software Foundation. We pretty much just smart hand support for that, that project. They have about three racks worth of stuff, but that project has, what, over maybe a thousand sub-projects underneath it. We don't do any management of that. Uh, but I would say we manage, I would say probably about, of course, I don't know. How do you count? We all the systems are all the projects that we have on our mirror. You know, there's I think there's over a hundred different th projects on that. If you count that as that, but I think actual like VMs that we manage uh, or systems that we manage in some capacity, I would say it's probably about two dozen or more. Um, it just kind of depends on the project. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the projects these days, they pretty much you know with with Ansible or whatever, they they're pretty easy to kind of get things going and. They don't need our help as much, but a lot of the smaller projects that's usually like one or two devs and they just want something that works. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that we provide is a lot of neutrality in our hosting. We're not a company, we're a university. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really important to some projects. Um, you know, there was a lot of worry that when Microsoft bought GitHub, you know, like, eh, I'm not sure about that. Um, and, you know, having a neutral place to kind of host a lot of that. So we that's one thing that we provide for a lot of these projects is neutral hosting. But it's kind of it's kind of hard to say, you know. We've been getting into some new projects with uh, bringing on uh, some newer services like Snowdrift.coop was one project that we're bringing on board where they've done a lot of their management and we're slowly onboarding some of their stuff. So if uh, oh sorry Scott, go ahead. No, no, that that, that that's good. Uh, so if a project, let's say someone has an open source project, it's just got a couple of devs on it, but it seems like it's starting to take off. How would they reach out to you about potentially being hosted? Uh, we have a web form on our website and basically fill that out and then it goes into our ticketing system and, and uh, they'll go through a process. We'll go back and forth and kind of determine like, what do you need? Um, what's the impact? You know, is it just like 10 people that use this and it's not really going to, you know, can you just get some resources elsewhere or is it something we see like, oh yeah, this is going to need some more attention. We want to make sure we help them out. Um, and then from there, we just kind of, we 
try to see how we fit you in with our infrastructure. And once we do that, we, we set things up and um, I kind of help with uh, at least the talking back and forth and seeing where things are at. And once it gets to a certain point, I'll hand that off to a student and they'll take off and they'll, they'll get the excess going. Awesome. And I know there's another, another project, which you are hosting or will be hosting soon that uh, we've been working on a bit together. Do you want to tell us about it? Uh, you're mentioning uh, Sync? I am. Okay. Yeah. So that was a, a, a new project out of, uh, because of chefs changing of the, the, the licensing, creating a community built version of, of Sync. And I saw that as a real opportunity for uh, the lab and the students to have access to a, a new open source project, essentially, in a way, um, kind of similar to how CentOS was way back in the day when Red Hat came out. And so um, I, I, I was excited getting jumping on it. We had the resources, we had the capability, and um, you know, I had the expertise on how to do a lot of the building and stuff like that. So it's been real exciting. We have a, <clears throat> I have a couple of VMs running on our OpenStack cluster for doing, uh, for GitLab runners, for doing the builds, and then hosting some uh, mirroring, uh, staging the VM, and then I have it all hosted on our mirroring network as well. Um, and then we also have, uh, I, had a, I had a Mac mini that wasn't being used and set that up as a, as a Mac builder. So that was fun, figuring that out. And then figured out how to get Windows running on OpenStack, which was a fun adventure. So we have a Windows builder in there. You should publish a book on that. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but it works. And so, yeah, I'm getting real involved in that. I haven't gotten a chance to get the students quite involved quite yet. We've been so busy with other stuff. Um, internally, we've been trying to get our the version of Chef that we use internally up to the version that's, that requires that new license. And so um, I was actually right before the call finishing up the last cookbook, we had the update to get it updated to 14. Um, and so now we can start working on 15. So we certainly will be doing a lot more with that soon um, and doing some testing with that. So, so yeah, that's, that's a lot of what's been going on with that. A lot of that has just been uh, getting infrastructure going and making sure things fit together. Awesome. I'm not sure if there's something else you wanted to know about. Oh, no. That. <laughs> Any questions from you, Chuck or Scott? Can you explain what SYNC is? I don't even know what that is. SYNC is not CHEF, or that's the acronym for it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. So uh, basically, chef, CHEF itself is a Ruby project, and it's uh, Apache software license and all that. So you can install the gem and use it as you want. But typically, if you use CHEF, you download a binary from CHEF Incorporated, and they fed it and they tested it and so forth. That binary now has a different license, and we can't you can't just download it and use it without accepting the license and paying for a license and all that. Um, and so there was a need to uh, build a new community version off of it. So it's basically a rebranded version of Chef that is called Sync. So from a user experience, all the commands and, and the package name and all the output should basically say Sync instead of Chef. Um, and that's what we've worked with. There's been a community of uh, it's about a half dozen of us around the world that's been working on it. So they've been uh, creating patches and making it a lot easier so that we could rebuild Chef and, and as sync and distribute it. So whenever a new release comes out, I basically just go to GitLab. I use the same tag version. We, we build it and distribute it on our mirrors. And we use the same uh, installation mechanism that a lot of the Chef ecosystem uses. So that was fun trying to replicate the API interface using the same system. I wanted to kind of follow the free software type of uh, using things. And Chef actually uses, um, I think, JFrog or Artifactory for a, lot of, for a lot of their stuff. And I was like, I just didn't feel good about that. I had this mirroring system. So I basically wrote a Ruby script that mimics that API so that when you run the, the, the Ruby gem that installs Chef, it talks the same thing and it installs it using sync instead. So. Something that the, this that you know, as you said, half dozen people around the world really helped us with is prior to this uh, chef in the chef client code base. Chef client was spelled five different ways, uh, or at least you know, written five different ways. And with the work of these fantastic community members, uh, it's now an environmental variable as to whether it says chef or whether it says sync or kitty or whatever it is people choose down the line and it's massively improved the so it's improved the software for both chef incorporated's builds and the community builds that lance and this community of or community of community members i how many times can i say community uh, have been working on so it's been a very net positive for all of us yeah it's been it's been very, very interesting working into that and, and and finding some some dragons down deep into it and figuring things out um 
You know, there's even some issues that we discover. They're like, oh, yeah, we should have fixed that a long time ago. I guess we'll fix it now kind of stuff. Right. Uh, like you mentioned with that. So it's been good kind of cr- catching all those issues and kind of fixing it. So, so yeah, I'm excited to finally have us use Sync actually in production here at the lab here pretty soon. So um, we'll be doing a lot more with that soon. That That's really cool. And I, I, I've used Chef off and on for years. And so it's it's interesting seeing, you know, kind of an open source little brother, little sister coming out and seeing how that can all come together. Yeah, um, Nick, I was going to say... Um, um, something else that I, I actually not related to sync itself, but with chef, you know, I've been during this process that we've been, uh, updating a lot of our cookbooks and stuff was one thing we were migrating our integration tests from service spec to inspect. And there was some issues we ran into with, with inspect. And I told my students, I'm like, feel free to submit a, a pull request and fix it. And, you know, you know, do it on our, on our time and all that. That's what we do. And that's what they did. And they got actually, uh, I think uh, there were some fixes to the post-fix configuration that was added, um, some other minor fixes that I've been going through. So I've been encouraging my students as much that they they, they contribute back when they, when we run into issues and kind of fixing that upstream. Do you have a process for kind of trying to like onboard students to get them more involved in doing you know that type of work, or is there? Do you guys teach, spend some time teaching them how it works, or do you just kind of expect you know hey they're they're doing coding, they're doing this stuff, and they just come in and they just kind of go at it themselves. I don't have anything formally described right now. Most of the time um, I'll, I'll kind of walk them through it. So I think they understand kind of the process we have. It's kind of similar, similar in some ways to what we have. And they're pretty good about reading the documentation. So if they run into something, I'd be like, oh, hey, I'm familiar with this community. I know how this works. You do this and do that and they'll figure it out. So, um, but I think on the, a lot of the fixes, like in the inspect that went in, uh, they kind of figured it out on their own. They they download the code, they read the, the contributor guides, they figured it out, they ran the tests. You know, I kind of helped them with that a little bit. It's like, okay, here's what's going on, here's how you can run the tests and all of that, and they figure that out. But they're they're amazing. They're able to do that, and I love being able to do that. Yeah, I find that the people that uh, would typically be the type of person that would do, you know, open source contribution is somebody who's going to just want to do it themselves anyways, they're not going to have to have somebody really lead them to it and show it. But I was just curious if, you know, this was something that was at the university level, you know, trying to get kids more, get them more involved in general. But you know. Well, at the university itself, um, there, there was, and I think maybe there currently is an open source class per se. Um, I don't know if they're still teaching it. Uh, but they basically went through that process where part of what that class had you do is like, put some kind of a contrib- contribution with a project, whether it's documentation, whatever, do something. So there is a little bit of formal training in that um, out there, but uh, universities and academia is really slow at making change. And so uh, <clears throat> we're doing our best to try and help with that as, as much as we can. We have a, a side uh, event that we run um, called DevOps Bootcamp. And we had one, uh, or, yeah, November, about a month ago. Um, and it was basically a crash course full day where like we, we teach them the basics of Linux. We show them how they can spin up Docker container or virtual machines. They can log in. They know how to run some package commands and go from there. And and so that's kind of a, an easy, uh, a simple way to do that because they really don't have a class that just teaches that kind of stuff. And so, and that's something we need to do a better job of fixing in the long term. I was curious. I just Googled whether the curriculum for that is available online. It looks like it is. I will put yeah. that in the show notes. Yes, it's all nice. available online. It's all on GitHub. Speaking of processes, and you kind of alluded to, well, I wish I wish uh, all of it was uh, automated. Well, in my mind, there are two forms of automation. One is is the, you know, like you were saying, you know, it, you set it up, you pixie boot it, it yeah, you know, and it just kind of runs. Um, and then there's the other automation that is follow this checklist and don't deviate. Um, so I'm curious, how much how much of this do you have like a formal process for? How much of it is kind of seat of the pants? I think with our chef development, like what the students are going through now, we kind of have a checklist of things to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, that's definitely a checklist. Like, okay, figure this out, do this, do this, read this, do this. Right. Um, for some uh, projects or things that we have, we we have an internal documentation site and we do have a checklist of this, this, and this. But as all things, there's some things that just haven't gotten documented and I've had to explain that. And our students are pretty good that once... Once they understand what's going on, they'll put up a documentation about it and be like, here's what you do. We kind of try to write it out similar to a, a man page almost where mm-hmm. you kind of explain what it is, 
you show some detailed examples um, <clears throat> and go from there. So we try our best, not everything is covered, but for the things that happen the most often, we do have some kind of a step-by-step -step process on that. Right. Awesome. It sounds like your students are, are the, it sounds like they're using the Git workflow for committing uh, source code and such. Yeah. Yeah. They're using the Git workflow for that quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a, Git, a GitHub presence? We do. Um, we have two different organizations. We have the OSU OSL one, and then we have OSU OSL dash cookbooks. Unfortunately, a lot of the cookbook stuff we have, we have it private because it's infrastructure code that we don't want to share, but we've tried to open up some of the ones we have, and I want to be able to open more of it up at some point. Um, if, if we can move a lot of the site specific stuff out of it but there, but, but yeah, we have it there. Um, we also have an internal GitLab instance for some other private data that we don't want to put on GitHub. Uh, but we, I try to open up as much as we can so it's, so students can get their, uh, their stats up and kind of show that they're doing stuff as much as they can on there. And we have a lot of automation integrated into Jenkins right now with like our, 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 uh, our chef, uh, deployments and so forth. So it sounds like your students learning the, f the full pipeline. Yeah, they are. They're learning the full pipeline. And that was the that was the one thing I really liked about using Chef was that they they got the chance of using. Uh, there was a great environment for doing unit testing and a great environment to do integration testing. So they got to do both of those, and then they they got a great way of like doing hands on of like I have a VM and I can see how this is configured and I can test this and do all of this, and and then it relates to just going in production makes it much much easier for them. So. Yeah. Cool. Well, if uh, we've got listeners like maybe experienced developers or, you know, industry people and they are listening to this now and they're saying, this is fantastic. I want to contribute to this open source lab, contribute to training the new generation of DevOps folks. Uh, where, what would you recommend they do? That's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> we're a pretty small organization here. And I'd say when we have um, the DevOps bootcamp uh, uh, in uh, next year, um, and we actually may have some more um, events, I think, in the winter term we're going to plan on doing. Um, if we put out a call on Twitter or, or other places, um, like, hey, we might want some engineers on site to maybe talk about their experience doing something. Um, and, and if you're in the area, that'd be great if you could do that. If not, we could also put you in on a video call as well. That'd be helpful. I'm trying to think what else. I mean, unfortunately, the way we have things set up, it's not as like, hey, go to our project and like submit stuff. I wish. I keep getting asked that. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. We have to, I have to juggle the, the uh, administrative management task of like onboarding all of these volunteers versus making sure we keep going with what the stuff we have and keep it stable and so forth. So I, we don't per se have things out there like that, we, um, unfortunately. Uh, the biggest thing we need is really getting the word out, you know, financial contributions. And if you have hardware that um, is coming off lease or whatever and you want to be able to send to us, we're always open to that. Or, or a 50C3 uh, foundation to the OSU Foundation, um, if you're interested. And so a vast majority of our funding comes through corporate donations. Um, I would say about two-thirds of it comes from corporate donations, and the other third comes from hosting contracts that we have for some of the larger projects. And so we don't get any direct funding from the university right now. So we're all self-funded, which makes my, my job interesting every year, figuring that out. So, But so far, the last couple of years has been great trying to figure that out. So um, our hardest problem is we don't get the word out of all the stuff we did. You, you don't know how important we are until we shut down. At that point, it's too late. <laughs> so we do, uh, being able to get the word out is really, really important and uh, helping us out. It's very cool. Yeah, even on the, the, the about page of the site, it talks about how the site's delivering 430 terabytes of information to people around the world every month. Wow. Which that number's probably gone up too. <laughs> yeah, I probably need to update that stat. <laughs> Yeah, our uh, FTP mirrors, we have three of them. We have one in Corvallis, one in Chicago, and one in New York. And um, all together, I think they push, let's see here. Um, oh, I have my thing right here. Yeah, currently it's it's averaging about two gigabits a second between all of them. Um, oh, y'all. Yeah. Um, yeah, they all I'm are. I'm trying to math that in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, they average about, I don't know, about 800 megabits on each one for the most part. Uh, but yeah, I can spike. They're all on 10 gig networks. Um, the, the two uh, servers that we have in Chicago and New York are actually at Gigapop locations um, where ISPs connect. So we have really good connectivity there, <laughs> which is why they're always very fast. Um, yeah, we partnered with um, 
we've been partnering with them actually, I think, since about our inception, so at least almost 15 years with uh, TDS Telecommunications. So they give us free bandwidth, and we just have to pay for co-location at those facilities. And so that, that works out really great. Awesome. The thing that I believe most about top-notch developers is that they're constantly learning. Whether you're out watching videos, whether you're reading blog posts or books, whether you're out writing open source software, you're always out there learning how to be a better developer. And my friends at Thinkster and I teamed up and we put together a show called the DevEd Podcast. You can find it at devedpodcast.com. It's run by Joe Eames, who you might know from JavaScript Jabber, Adventures in Angular, and Views on View. And they have terrific conversations about what it means to become a better developer, to learn how to do development, and the ways that you can learn. So if you're looking for inspiration and ideas about how you can do better and learn better as a developer, then go check out the DevEd Podcast. Well, I want to make sure uh, to say, just so we don't forget, thank you for all you're doing. This is enormously important to the DevOps community and the DevOps world. Yeah, yeah. yeah and thank you very much. Yeah, um, I wish... I wish we had more students and we could do more things and, and teach more students, but the students we have are doing amazing work and going out. They usually have no problem finding jobs after the fact. Um, if you ever want to hire one of our students, you need to grab them for an internship on their sophomore or junior year. Otherwise, they probably already got snatched up by somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> How many students do you have working with you on, you know, in a given year? Um, right now it's about seven or eight students I have right now. In years past, we had about, I think we had upwards of 20 students. Um, but that was, uh, we had a little bit more budget back then and we had to kind of do some downsizing a few years ago. So that's about as much, many students as I can handle myself mentoring. Um, and so that works out really great. But over the, how many years we've gone on, I think we have about well, probably over hundred, 110 students that have gone through the program that are out, out in the in the industry and doing a lot of stuff. So we've been, we, we don't do well on qu quantity, but we do really well on quant uh, quality. <laughs> um, I'm kind of curious. So if uh, a project comes to you and says, hey, we want help with our infrastructure, um, how do you evaluate whether or not you're going to accept them and provide them with help? It depends on, well, one factor is how much infrastructure are they talking? Is it something that requires a lot of RAM that we don't maybe have the capacity for? Does it fit within the infrastructure capacity we have? Um, if we're managing it, do we have the, the amount of people to manage it and bring it on board with the expectation of that project? And um, trying to think what else. It's, it's also the type of service that they're wanting us to, to host and so forth. Is it something that makes sense? Um, it needs to be an OSI-approved licensing model. Um, we try to be very strict about making sure we're only hosting open source projects. Um, trying to think. And it, well, there's a lot of other things that are considered. So the, the health of the community um, is, if the community is kind of in, a, in, a, uh, in an unhealthy state where there's, you know, infighting going on and so forth, we don't really want to get involved with that. Um, you know, we want to... I don't blame you. We, yeah. we want to stay out of that as much as possible. We don't want to be um, involved in any of the internal politics. We're pretty much making sure that you have your, 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 your sites up and all that. So that, that, that's really involved with that. And just kind of the history of the community as well. You know, where, where has it been? Where has it gone? You know, do they have any issues that we need to consider? Um, you know, years, years past, we, we hosted Freenode for quite a while. Um, uh, the IRC network, if you remember that, I'm still on there all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, we had, it was, we had some issues where they're getting constantly uh, denial of service attacks. And it got to the point where it shut down the internet on campus in the middle of the morning, in the middle of the week. And like, I kind of got some people mad at me. So I had to say, I'm sorry, we can't do that anymore. And so right. situations like that, you know, there's been, I think it's come up before like, Hey, can you host some tornadoes? And I'm like, eh, I don't think so. Like, I, I want to support the project, but that, that puts up too much liability for the university. So I can't quite do that. Yeah, that would potentially add to your administrative headaches as well. So, Yeah, we've had some fun, fun situations over the years. Um, uh, ones that I remember actually with the PHBB project. So uh, on their when you install PHBB, it usually says powered by... PHBB, and then it takes you to a page, and on that page it says that uh, PHBB is hosted by OSL. And so 
for the novice that looks at that, if they, for example, some people with questionable morals will host a forum about some type of uh, subject that goes against somebody and then it gets into some kind of litigation. And so eventually what happens is we'll get some cease and detest of hosting for this website we don't host. And they don't understand that. And so thankfully, uh, I, I just let the project, uh, PHBB contact uh, project know about it. And that one of the project leaders, he knows how to do it. He'll just go straight to them and, and figure it out. And uh, that's always been entertaining. And then there was, uh, there's always been another one where there's another project where there was a copyright dispute and I had to actually go through OSU general counsel. And I'm like, I didn't need to go oh, through this. And, uh, and so we ended up having to figure it out and got it all sorted out. But yeah, we try not to get situations like that. <laughs> I, I, I try not to get involved with OSU general counsel as much as I can, but, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we do a quite a bit with just trying to be a neutral play playground for stuff. I, I run the lab kind of like a startup. Um, in a way, and lab, and so they, I give the students a lot of flexibility in their, their schedule because they're students. Academics is always important. I sometimes have problems with the students preferring to do work than doing academics because <laughs> they enjoy working on the stuff that we have. But um, but <clears throat> always have to work around that quite a bit. Awesome. Well, any uh, last questions or comments before we move on to picks? Uh, one other thing I'm curious about. So you said that you run CI/CD for a lot of these projects. Um, what are you running there? Is it Jenkins or is it something else? Well, some of the stuff is Jenkins that we manage, and some of it is just uh, it could be Jenkins, it could be GitLab runners. Okay. Um, we're basically providing the infrastructure to do what they need to do. So okay. some of it is our own CI/CD, but uh, I say the vast majority is we just provide them compute disk and capacity to do all of that. I got it. And then you just let them manage what they want. Yeah, pretty much. Unless unless they come to us and be like, hey, we need you to manage this and then we will do it. Right. Or if they come to you and say, we don't know how to set up a GitLab runner and you're like, oh, that, you know, we have a recipe for that or we know how to do that. And yeah, there's actually been, I've been talking to some projects that um, have been interested in uh, having us host some GitLab installations as well. Um, and I think we certainly can, provide that capability based off of what we do internally. Whether we can scale as much as they need, you know, it was a big question, but I think we certainly have the infrastructure. Yeah. Um, a lot of the things I've been trying to do over the years is upgrade our infrastructure to be more flexible and more um, cloud native, I guess, is the term we use. So way back in the day, we, when we started doing virtualization, we started with just Zen, just manually doing things. And then we migrated to using a project called Gennetti to manage uh, virtual machines, which was a project out of Google at one point, and then they kind of went away. Um, that was before OpenStack even existed. And we're still using Gennetti on some of our pet VMs, uh, but in the last several years, we've been doing a lot with OpenStack and getting that going and managing that. Um, I'm involved with the Chef community on, on OpenStack as well. And uh, and then from the air, there, it was like upgrading our storage backends. And so, uh, we now have a, a nice Ceph cluster for all of our stores. It really integrates well into OpenStack. And the next step that I'm hoping to get my students involved with using is uh, doing things in Kubernetes and getting into that. So I think we kind of have the basics there to kind of start looking into running Kubernetes on site and then seeing how that fits into what we do. Um, a lot of the stuff we host is more of the, the traditional stuff that we, you know, PHP sites and things like that. But I think there's a lot of things that we could probably host a lot better if we do it with some kind of Kubernetes setup. So that's something I'm trying to get our students interested in looking into. Nice. One more question that I have, and that is how much of your time do you spend on management and governance as opposed to DevOps and technical stuff? <laughs> well, I used to do a lot more management stuff, but now that's basically been just me and the students. Um, I'd say I do maybe 20% management. The rest of it's DevOpsy stuff. Right. Um, uh, I try to help with more of the advanced stuff that's going on. And then I try to get my students involved as much as I can with understanding how the advanced things are kind of set up and let them dive mm -hmm. into that. So that's kind of where I'm at, I think. Sounds good. Cool. All right. Uh, Scott, did you have something else you wanted to say? No, no. I was oh. just ready for picks. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, but Chuck's hogging the mic. 
<laughs> no, no, I just like you, Nell mentioned picks, and I was like, oh god, what am I gonna, what am I gonna? Ah, gotcha. All right. Well, one of the things we do at the end of each show is we pick out one or two things. It can be technical, it can be non-technical that we've enjoyed or found useful uh, to us within the past week, or or it doesn't have to be within the past week, but within the past. So I will go ahead and start off. Uh, so. I had a birthday recently and my wife gave me for as a combination birthday present plus thank you for getting her through law school present a PlayStation 4 Pro which I'm enjoying very much. Uh, I was a little scared to say this considering how much internet hate it received when it first came out but I'm really enjoy enjoying Mass Effect Andromeda. Um, if you've liked the previous Mass Effect games uh, it's it's a different game but it is in the same world and I'm enjoying seeing their world uh, well more than one world uh, expand. So I've been enjoying playing that quite a bit uh, over the Thanksgiving break and uh, on my evenings. And let's go ahead and go to Chuck. Chuck, what are your picks this week? All right. This is the last week I'm doing the Christmas movies. But uh, just because I don't know what the timing is and I don't want Christmas movies halfway into January. Um, but yeah, I'm going to pick some of the classics. Um, and these are ones that I just kind of have fond memories of watching as a kid. One is the the first three are all um, kind of the clay animation, stop motion type movies. Um, so we're talking Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, The Little Drummer Boy. They're all just fun, awesome, you know, lighthearted movies that I've really, really enjoyed um, throughout my life. Um, and then uh, since this is the last time, I've got to pick my favorite, right? And I've kind of been hinting at it. came out in 1983. It's a Christmas story. And uh, there's just so much classic stuff in there. I think every year I, I joke that I'm going to get one of my kids um, that uh, uh, the bunny rabbit um, pajamas. And uh, anyway, um, you know, and uh, my kids ask me every year, if you stick your tongue on the flagpole, will it really? Yes. Yes. Yes, it will. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I just love, 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 love that movie. And then I'm going to break my rule a little bit. And I'm going to pick a newer movie. This is a movie and I, I can't put my finger on exactly why I like it. I had somebody ask me if it's a Hallmark movie and it's not, it's an independent movie and it's kind of got that Hallmark ish feel, but it's not like full on cheese ball Hallmark movie. It's called the ultimate gift and it's just got a terrific message. It's centered around Christmas and, uh, Anyway, I, I really, really love that movie. So um, I'm going to pick that one as well. And dang, I should pick something technical, but I'm, I'm, I'm drawn up a blank. So next time I'll be picking other stuff. Awesome. Scott, how about you? Yeah, it's kind of funny because, you know, I swear every year on Twitter, there becomes this conversation about whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not. And I, and I, 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 I don't know. I had a VHS recording of that thing back in the day. And <laughs> I, I probably watched that thing like more than a dozen times, but uh, I finally rewatched that recently and just, just, it's so silly, but it's so fun. It's, it's, you know, I see, you see why like people are still obsessed with it. Cause it's just still kind of like funny and timeless in some kind of a gaudy way. But uh, yeah. So if I'm going to shift gears towards something technical. Um, so been reading Clean Code by Robert C. Roger C. Martin, Robert C. Martin, sorry. Um, you know, it's just agile software craftsmanship. I mean, it's a very popular book, uh, but uh, it's kind of newer on my radar. And I think it's a really fantastic book. Um, and kind of back to like a more of an entertainment pick. Uh, so there's a, I've gotten into racing a little bit and, um, so I've started watching much many more shows like, I, you know, and there's this one that's called Jim Files, and it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, so if you have a Prime membership, you can, it's, you can watch it for free, but it's, it's literally this, I don't know, like eight episode series uh, where this guy was, this guy, Kid Block, who I forget what the company was he started, but he basically, after he started and became a successful founder, he basically started getting into a rally and then doing these crazy kind of videos where he's just doing like donuts and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And I just think it's a really, really fun race uh, show to watch. It's kind of like half documentary, half like, um, you know, like inside peek into what it's like to, to drive these cars and stuff. So the Jim Files. So, 
see the show notes. <laughs> awesome. I did uh, an interview with Robert C. Martin a week and a half ago. Nice. And uh, yeah, I'm not exactly sure when that's coming out because it's for a new podcast project that I haven't announced yet. But uh, yeah, keep your eyes out open for that. If you want to get on the uh, devchat.tv mailing list, then I'll probably send a big announcement when we get that one out. But yeah, it, it was a really good uh, conversation about his book, Clean Agile. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's sold a lot of books. I mean, I forget, like I watched some, I, he has like some video of him. I swear several million books or something like that between his different ones. So kind of impressive for sure. Yep. Um, Lance, how about you? Uh, I'm just sitting here thinking, and I can't think of anything in particular. <laughs> um, well, I guess one thing, uh, at least on the entertainment side, I recently watched a really uh, cool comedy special on Netflix uh, from uh, Mike Birbiglia um, that he did and highly recommended it. It was really fun to have him talking about his experience becoming a father and, 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 and all that. And me and my wife had a lot of agreement of like, this is what it's like. And yeah, we are <laughs> having fun with that. <laughs> and, How Spell his last name? I don't know how to spell it. Oh, that's um, okay. But yeah. Um, we have top-notch show notes people. They'll find it. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess the only other thing is I'm excited. I think there's some a new season of uh, um, The Toys That Made Us um, uh, that's out on Netflix. I'm excited to see that. And I think they have a, a new one called Movies That Made Us. I'm interested in seeing how that is. I, I enjoyed the first season of The Toys one. Learning about seeing the Legos and other things that I grew up with and saying, oh, yeah, that's how that'll happen. That sounds fascinating too. Yeah, the, awesome. Uh, I definitely watched the first season of that for sure. So this is definitely interesting. All right. Well, this has been a great episode. Uh, Lance, thanks so much for coming on. It was great to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me on. All right. And with that, uh, thank you all our listeners for joining us. And we will be back in your headphones next week. Take care, everyone. Max out, everybody. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.